Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. This is episode 54, and my guest today is a wonderful man. I just love this guy, C. Von Hassett. He is a decades-long practitioner of Dzogchen. He's the editor-in-chief of LA's premier literary and cultural magazine, Riot Material, and he's the author of a new book called Entering the Mind. And on this episode today, he shares such wisdom-filled considerations on how we can awaken ourselves toward the recognition of our own mind in its most natural state. We're going to talk about all aspects, highlights of Dzogchen as it serves as a doorway to self-knowing awareness and ultimately accessing full knowledge. We break down such topics as the difference between conceptual mind and non-conceptual mind and why that's important, the illusion of the I in meditation and in life, why our stories that we tell ourselves ultimately are false, how we can move from attachment to allowance, and a thing called the fourth state of time. This and a lot more as he shares humbling personal stories and influences that I know you can apply to your life in service to your journey and your wholeness. As always, I hope that this serves you well and pass it on to somebody else who could use it. Enjoy. See, Chris, see Vaughn. Yes. All the above. All of the above. It's great to have you on the Spiritual Geek Out. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to unpack your great book, Entering the Mind. So let's do that, shall we? Let's do it. The Dzogchen practice, you've been doing this how long? I started in the roughly early 90s um, and then practiced pretty intensely for a good 10 or 15 years and then kind of drifted, had it in the back of my mind for another 10 years or so, and then have been practicing pretty deeply ever since. Beautiful. And I want to really unpack all this wonderful, all these wonderful teachings that are in your book that I know will support many a meditator who listens to this podcast. And even if you're not a meditator, just on the path of life. So before we get into that, I want to kind of just hit Doschen right head on when Mm. it's said that it's considered the highest and most profound form of meditation in the Nyingma, is that correct? Nyingma uh, school of meditation? Of yeah, med- I, I, I haven't really pronounced that word in a long, long time. Um, I'm, not, I'm not of the school, I just know that is the peak of that school. Um, okay. But it is also the peak of Buddhism, and it's also the peak of Bon, uh, Tibetan Bon, which is a more shamanistic tradition in uh, Tibet. Why is it considered the highest and most profound form of meditation? Well, all of the teachings in Buddhism and pretty much all the teachings throughout uh, Asia are directly pointing towards this realm of Dzogchen. They just never take you all the way to the edge. They, they take you to the edge, but they don't, they don't push you through. Dzogchen is the one tradition that actually uh, pulls you through and it reveals to you your own mind in its natural state. And it's, this is simply just, you just don't find it anywhere else on the planet. This kind of uh, pointing out that is absolutely needed to, for you, the practitioner, to recognize your own mind in its natural state. If nobody's pointing it out for you, you'll never see it. Not in this lifetime, not ever and ever, because it, it's the mind that is absolutely doing nothing. And it's, it's kind of there as this emptiness. And only when it's pointed out to us, do we recognize like, oh, wow, I, I've been seeing you all my life. I just haven't paid any attention to you. Mm-hmm. So Dzogchen points us there. And then it tells us why it's so important to just rest there and not do anything, not try to analyze it, not try to 
you know, uh, make sense of it, just simply rest there and let the, the winds of this, this space uh, kind of catch you up in it, although it is, a, it's a, uh, that's a metaphor. So it's a totally still space and you just absorb the spaciousness of it all. Hmm. Describe, if you can, what self-knowing awareness is. Self-knowing awareness kind of shifts the perspective just so where you're no longer seeing the world from the two eyes and, and feeling the world through the body. You're now recognizing very clearly that the body arises in awareness. And so when you're seeing, it, it would be like if you're in an airplane and you're sitting in one of the seats in the airplane and you're looking out the window, you recognize that the plane is being supported by the space outside, but you're within it. And so you're viewing the world in this way. The one shift in perspective is moving that awareness outside of the plane. So now the awareness, which is space, is supporting the body. And this is what our awareness is doing for us. We've been deceived. For, for countless lifetimes, you know, body after body, even our dream bodies, even the bodies that we assume in death, they take on a perspective. And this perspective, we feel very much one-to-one uh, -one with this internal, I'm bound to my body perspective. The Dzogchen teachings kind of through training, through experience, we learn to shift that perspective. So it's a very real shift. It's not just an intellectual one. It's an experiential one that now you're in my awareness, my body's in my awareness. I recognize that you as an awareness are one with my awareness. We both have different perspectives on the same space, but we're all one with the same space. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. The conceptual mind, you talk about this in your, early on in your book, and you share how the conceptual and the non-conceptual mind exist really as one. Mm. And you extrapolate on that? Well, the conceptual mind has to arise out of something. You know, uh, what is it arising out? Of? It's arising out of your very awareness. So this, this, the non-conceptual awareness, what's called a mind in its natural state, um, it does not attach to anything. It allows for everything. It allows for thoughts to rise. It allows for the entire universe to unfold before it and within it. Um, but through, um, through all of the, you know, the many lifetimes, we've become very distracted. And this gives rise to the conceptual mind, the I entity, the thinking, you know, in relation to the I. And then, then it becomes I versus them. So there's the dualities that take place. Right. Um, but this conceptual mind is is part and parcel of the non-conceptual mind. We're aligned with the conceptual mind and the, the, the job of Dzogchen is to teach us how to align with the non-conceptual mind, which then totally allows for the conceptual mind to exist. Mm. Everything else. Well, there's a lot of talk on emptiness mm. in this practice. And I, it brings to mind, no pun intended, this idea that we're 99% emptiness, like the body is 99.9% .9 emptiness, which you touch upon later in your book, which I guess my conceptual mind cannot wrap its brain around. Can you explain how we're 99.9%? .9 I mean, I understand that we are made up more of the unseen than the seen, but can you break down how were in essence emptiness? Well, so um, this 99.9% is, is in relation to space. What the body is actually, and as is every all matter in the universe, 99.99% space. We, there's no way our, our two eyes can see this because we see substance, we see matter, we see flesh. But the quantum physics world, they'll, they'll just get right in there and they'll just like move right past all that matter and get down to the very space of our bodies. So the space, when we look at actual space, we know that it's endless. It doesn't begin. It doesn't end. This, this is the very space our awareness exists in. Um, when we say emptiness, emptiness is, is a bit different in the sense that 
Emptiness refers to the idea that all of the concepts and all of the names and everything that we believe to be in actual existence, for instance, my body, I could say, this is my body and I am this body. Well, the practice has us looking for the I in the body. Uh, it does it through, you know, looking in where the eye should be in the foot. If it's everywhere in the body, it should be in the foot as well. So we look in the foot, we look in the arms, we look in, we look everywhere for the eye and we, we can't find it. This indicates the body is empty of the very labels that we give it. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't necessarily a body. It's inherently not a body. It is a composition of all different things, billions and billions of things. So the emptiness kind of refers to the lack of um, conceptual uh, inherentness to everything. We don't see that until we begin to practice meditation, and many meditations will take us there. Um, when you're when you recognize your own mind in its natural state, you see this on the most profound level. You you see that the body and this I entity is totally a concept. And that none of it uh, has any inherence. Um, it exists, form exists, you know, matter exists, but it's not just not in the way that we perceive it to exist. Mm. So this is the great shift of perspective. This is the liberating shift in perspective. Okay. Yeah, I love how you share in your book about the labels we give ourselves as it relates to, hey, being an addict or being mm. depressed or any of these states or conditions. Yes. And it's like, try to find the addict in your eye and you won't find it. No. (laughs) So why are you labeling yourself or deeming yourself to be this thing that you can't even really, there's no foundation for. Exactly. But nobody teaches us this. There's, especially in the Western world. uh, I don't know of any teachers when I was growing up uh, I had to seek them out, you know, like that, that, that just tell you that your stories are false. Yes. Have fun with them. But really in the end, they're false. Um, everything that you see around you, you, that table that you've just set your cup on, isn't actually a table. And here's a, here's a strategy to look at how it's not a table. And I could just very easily show you that we can call it a table. We can all agree it's a table, but in the end it's on it from its own end, it's not a table. It's just this all these parts put together to create something that we put our coffee on that we call a table that we call a table. Okay. Gosh, I feel like we could kind of break that one apart a little even further. My, oh my, God, yeah. my brain's slightly exploding on that one, but I agree with you. <laughs> well, how does one go from attachment to allowance? By it, and this is what's so beautiful about the, the Dzogchen practice. It really is a practice. It's a practice like yoga is a practice, mm-hmm. like learning how to shoot pool or drive a car or, or, or cook or cook a meal. It's a practice in that you, you have the teachings that help you recognize your own mind in its natural state. This is critical. Then you, once you recognize it in every single meditation, you, you rest in that recognition and you just simply become get to know this space that is your uh natural state your innate being and you rest in this and this is beautiful because you know it's it's such a wonderful place to explore and to observe and just uh, you know just sit in and in doing this it naturally imparts all of its wisdoms because all of the knowing ever is within you the, all the knowledge of the Buddha, all the knowledge of Christ, all of all of the knowledge of the universe is already within you. You just need to access it. And so when you're just resting in the natural state, you are in full access of this knowledge. It, 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 but it takes place over time. The more you become confident in this, this space, the more you know it, the more you become intimate with it, the more it reveals itself to you. And this is the movement that takes you towards what everybody's seeking. You know, they're traveling all over the world to find the teacher to help them awaken. And that teacher is actually within us, you know, and all we have to do is just do this one little thing. And we do it every day or as often as possible. And uh, over time, it really allows us to see things as they are. Do you, if we are going to give it a name, 
would you call that teacher, that inner teacher, that inner knowing or inner guru or whatever you want to call it? Would you say that's your higher self? Would you say that's your soul? Would you say it's something else? I mean, I would call it our higher self. And I do call it the higher self. You know, I do. I, I say, I don't know. That, that is one of the words I would use to, to address this, um, this incredibly timeless entity, mm-hmm. which is a totality. Would you call it divine consciousness? It is part of, it is, it is one-to-one with divine consciousness, but it is your perspective, which is also divine. Um, and conscious. I, I see, I, I, you know, uh, I see divine consciousness almost being like the collective conscious or what the, you know, the uh, transcendental meditation would call the unified field, you know, that, that collective field of awareness that we all are part of. And yet we all have our individual perspectives on that field as well. So yes, it's divine and it's divine consciousness, but it's our own. Right. Well, since you mentioned transcendental meditation, let's go into that and talk about the two practices that you break down in your book um, that aids in your, as you say, arrival Mm. at recognizing our mind in its natural state. Mm -hmm. One being shamatha, is that right? Shamatha is is a training that helps you prepare for the Dzogchen teachings and that you stabilize you know, the thinking mind isn't just pulling you away every time you get settled into something. The thinking mind is now settled. You, you practice in that mode for a couple of months and now, you, now you're stable and now you can actually spend the time looking at your own mind beneath the thinking, beneath. And if a thought does arise, you just observe it like you would observe a bird move through the sky. This is what Shamatha gives us. Mm. And then the second half of that or the second part of that would be, or I should say just the other practice really is transcendental meditation, which duly noted has nothing to do with Zochen, but right. you find it to have great gravity. I mean, I, I like it. And I mean, I love all meditations. I think they're yeah. all, you know, like really important. I like transcendental meditation uh, because it really does, you know, like through a mantra it pulls you into this, what they call the unified field, but really what you're looking at is your own natural state. Right. You're looking at this completely open, spacious, uh, you know, non-eternal uh, mind space. But the one thing they don't tell you that's what you're looking at. They're, they're saying, oh, you've entered the unified field. And the more, you, more often you do this, the more you kind of like develop your own wisdom. But I think it's really important to know that this one is, it's yours that this is something that you can enter on your own every single time and, and stay there and develop uh, because it is, it is your innate essence that you're looking at. You mentioned before we got on this podcast that Dzogchen is actually, it actually originated in India and it was considered a particular or the highest form of maybe a Raja yoga or a Royal path. Is that right? So um, Dzogchen was introduced to the world through the Buddha um, okay. and he, he received this transmission from the, the universe or a mind transmission from beings beyond the planet. And the, it very loosely, you'll, you'll just pick up through, if you're reading all the Dzogchen test, texts about every 20 or 30 texts, you might see that there's one reference to the Dzogchen teachings being communicated throughout 13 different solar systems uh, in the universe. Um, so, and these, when these masters die, they're actually still out there communicating and then they return to the earth. And, you know, so that there's this continual movement in and out of the earth and the teachings are still moving and living on both ends of the spectrum. So I, as far as my understanding is, is the Buddha received these teachings uh, under the tree and um, then communicated them to, to the world very selectively. Um, so we could say that the teachings arrived through India and they were practiced in India for quite a long time. I'm not sure if they were practiced in India in the last thousand years um, because the teachings really moved significantly to Tibet. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Who was your first teacher? 
my first teacher, uh, well, through reading was uh, Tukul Urjan Rinpoche, but okay. he wasn't my first teacher who gave me my first transmission. That was Namkai Norbu Rinpoche and Kenshin Thrangi Rinpoche. And then I studied for a number of years in the Bond tradition uh, under Tenzin Wangyo Rinpoche. Mm, okay. Well, what teaching, um, or is there a teaching that you didn't understand in your earlier days that you now at best embody or at least have greater understanding on that has altered you? Well, I really feel if I came into this world um, bringing a lot of baggage from some other life. And this was dark, heavy matter. Um, it felt, it felt demonic in many ways. Mm. And then um, growing up in a house where, I mean, the neighborhood was really, there was ghosts everywhere and there was really a lot of bad behaviors taking place in this neighborhood I grew up in. So I felt this was a continuation. Mm. And then um, uh, in my, my dreams were fraught with just these horrible, like um, spatial realm type of hell realm um, crushings and distendings. And uh, it was just like a, a very confusing entry into the world. Um, so I was really seeking some understanding and I was, I was, go, you know, going through the native American teachings and trying to make sense of what was happening in my life. And I ultimately stumbled on some Buddhist teachings that spoke to the hell realms. And they spoke to this one hell realm very clearly that I have had memories of. And I thought, well, okay, Buddhism must have something going on that I, that I, I need to seek out some more information on. Um, so there was some good clarification there. And, and it also helped me to understand that, you know, the dark energies and the, the loving kind energies are all one and the same. There's really... In the end, when you get a, when you begin to move into a place of love and compassion, and, and especially with these uh, higher teachings of Dzogchen, you begin to see that they're all part and parcel of the same energy field. Right. So, oh. would you say those dark energies or negative realms, as described in the Dzogchen teachings, is it states of separation? Well, so the Dzogchen teachings don't know so much speak to them because they really focus on this mind in its natural state. But this was the, they, this was Buddhist teachings, and they were like um, from this great uh, female practitioner back in Tibet uh, in the early 19th century. And she was speaking to all of these various aspects. Of, I think it was a Shad, Shad lineage, and. Um, she was just started going off on all these different hell realms that uh, she was aware that you, you could slip into if you're not careful. And one of them she, she described in perfect detail on, on um, what I felt was my previous experience. Hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure if that really answered your question because um, really all of the teachings, my entire life, it feels like it's been teachings from the, the, the negative teachers to the, yeah. The highly positive teachers. Yeah. Well, uh, no, that does answer my question. And then it opens up the sort of <laughs> box to many other questions off what you're sharing and not to focus on the negative, but just because that's an aspect of creation. Yes. Uh, what would, what did you get from this teacher on the sort of potential of us um, opening ourselves to the negative? what were the sort of prerequisites? I think the prerequisite is allowing yourself to slip down day by day, action by action, some, some bad behaviors, and then moving and, you know, we can move into hell realms right here on earth, you know, right. in, in our own minds. Right. And then, but you can, you could choose. And I, I made a choice early on, you know, because watching my father who was, you know, had, had, you know, heavy drinking issues and was not afraid to use his fists and, you know, right. just, um, neighbors who were molesting children and, you know, just all kinds of weird stuff happening in this neighborhood that I grew up in. I, I made a commitment and I remember making this commitment at a very young age to, to never hurt anybody to pursue the highest path that I can open up my heart. Cause I felt my heart was terrorized and shut down. Hmm. And, um, 
and I just felt vulnerable. And I wanted to, I wanted to overcome this. I didn't want to be a victim to this. And so I really spent a lot of years pursuing any path and particularly the path of good behavior, even though I, you know, I never, I never censored myself and I never disallowed myself to indulge in drug use and, you know, all kinds of, you know, like fun, but it was often seeking truths that I wasn't getting from the mundane realm, you know? So, yeah. um, I just, I think that's it. I think you can slip in, you can move toward any hell realm just by allowing yourself to do bad things. And then that's going to lead you to do more and more. And then, you know, before you know it, you're, you're swimming in it. And then it's really difficult to pull yourself out. Yeah. I really hear that from your sharing. It, it just speaks to me as the power of choice Yes, and the power of providence. Like we're all blessed, but through your power of choice, spirit, I always say spirit meets you at the level of your action. And in your choosing to receive goodness or to be aligned or attuned with that, which is the light action, you were directed and guided to that. Whereas your father in choosing, say, just getting blitzed. Yeah. Uh, created more and more openings of negativity because it does just that one drink never killed anybody but the more we just give our hand over our consciousness to other entitelial beings realms conditions whatever you want to call it yeah that very thing is the very thing which will walk in and take over our own consciousness Yes. So, you know, bravo to you. I just acknowledge you for that. And and I guess the last thing I just want to say off that, that I just find very profound in your sharing is, is the, um, the, 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 the idea or the, the fact, I guess, that we're really all inherently good. Yes. That you have an awareness, even as a kid, as you are witness to these atrocities, to these negative you know, dark ways of being separate from the loving nature, you know, inherently in your innate nature, uh, which is the loving that, yeah, that, that don't fly. That's not who I am. And Mm -hmm. that's not where I came from. And that's not where, who I want to be. Yes. So good news to that, (laughs) you know, it's also great. uh, What you just said in the sense that, you know, we're all good. Um, we all, we all have that in us, you know? So when we're, when we're really in most in our conceptual mind, that's very difficult to see the goodness in other people, because we just, we just make quick judgments on, on what we're seeing in this particular moment. And then if we see it once, twice more than that person's that. Um, But what you really begin to develop as you practice, particularly Dzogchen is you develop this heart of compassion, because you begin to recognize more and more that we all are incredible beings, and we're all here floundering in many ways. Well, even if we're successful, we're, we're, we're somewhat floundering. And if we're, if we're really struggling, and if life is a big challenge, then we're really floundering. And it's, it's so people are really making the best of it. And they're making the best of it in a Western world that's not giving them any foothold to make sense of who they are. It's actually given them more and more distractions, more and more technological platforms to place their identities in and lose themselves even further. So, you know, you see this and uh, you recognize, you know, that people are are so worthy of compassion, even at their worst. Um, And yet, um, you know, it's hard to love somebody who's, you know, just really, just out, just criminalizing and and brutalizing it's, but you don't have to love these people, but you can recognize that there is a, there is an essence to them that is pure. That is, that is, could turn, that could take them to ultimately, I mean, at some point they're going to enter their own hell hell realms and that alone is worthy of compassion because those on your own are dire. Right. Right. It's well, it's like, well, when I work with people that are having a hard time forgiving others of their own um, 
grossly misaligned actions, mm. be it something as, a, as atrocious as, God forbid, rape mm. or robbery or killing, mm-hmm. you know, really intense stuff. Yes. Um, I remind them that, well, God is either unconditional or not. So which do you choose? And of course, they all say, well, God, the God of my understanding is unconditional. Okay, great. So we all come from that. And therefore, if we are all coming from that unconditionality, then we are all of that like nature. We are all inherently of the loving. And then we're just all experiencing dependent on our curriculum, our spiritual progression, our path of growth and upliftment. We're all experiencing in varying degrees, a sort of slippage (laughs) from that place of unconditional loving yeah and then you look at the obvious like a hitler right and you go yes he did terrible things nobody needs to dispute that right but even him too had the potential to go right instead of left and to forgive to see you know, the good in someone to enjoy or at least cooperate or appreciate the differences in preferences on this planet, (laughs) opposed to condemnation and gross separation, to say the very least. Yes. Hmm. Well, in looking into, first of all, in reading your book, it, 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 stirred in me a little bit of um, a desire to research more Mm. on Dzogchen. And I came upon this um, aspect of Dzogchen where the practice is said to have two categories or levels. The first being Trek Chod, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which literally means to cut through, cutting through, the path of cutting through. And the second Togol or Togal or direct crossing or leaping over. Mm. And without going into it, I'd love you to explain the significance of that because I find that to be really beautiful as a sort of order of events as we sort of learn to or experience the, the dissolving of our karma. We must first cut through that which blocks us from our inherent nature so that we can cross over and have direct experience leap over to the sunshine. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And what are we cutting through? We're cutting through our own I entity. We're cutting through our ego. We're cutting through this sense of singularity of ourselves that separates us from everything. So we cut through, um, the Tibetans will throw themselves into a cemetery for days at a time, you know, these, these very, you know, spooky places where there's bones everywhere and they'll sit and meditate for, for, for as long as they can to, to come to the, you know, first of all, bypass their fear. Um, but while they're, while they're doing it, they're observing their, their, their I entity, you know, that, that sense of who they think they are and why is it so vulnerable to these spirits or these ghosts? It's a very complex practice, um, but you could be narrowed down to looking for your own I entity in your own body. And there is a tradition, uh, tradition in, uh, I forget what the name of the tradition is, but they, they look specifically at cutting apart the body uh. in the imagination and you know, tossing tossing the hand over, tossing the hand in front of them and the legs and all of the parts of the body, and they offer it up to the Buddha realms or to the anyone who needs these parts. But what you're looking for is you're looking for that I. You're looking for where where is Sivan, um, or even where is my foot? Because when you look at the foot, you find that the foot doesn't even exist because you know beneath this idea of the foot, you have all these bones and you have the skin and you have the, all the way down to the atoms itself. So in the end, you don't find the foot. And if you don't, if you can't even find the foot, you can't find the eye. And it's true. By the time you're done taking apart your whole body in your meditation, 
you recognize that the I does not exist within this body. And this little movement time and again gives us more and more experience of detaching from our own I. And this allows us to see the awareness space within us that allows us to see the body is sitting within the awareness. So by the time you've done this a number of times and you've really stabilized in your practice, you could be sitting there if you're meditating at night in bed, you're, you're sitting there with your awareness filling the whole room and you're observant of the body being within it. And, you know, whoever, if the dog's in the room with you, the dog is also within your awareness. And this is that spaciousness of, of crossing over. So, but, so the two work well together. They're, they're like, you know, they're packages. They're a package in a sense. Explain what you mean by the fourth time. So the fourth time, again, when you do cross over and you're now in the awareness being, um, you recognize as well that there is no time there. There is no past because you're, you're right there in the very present and you're observant of the totality and endlessness of this present moment. You see that there's no future either. And you, you observe this very clearly, but then when you even go to look for the present, there is no present either, because where's the present in the present, you can really go down to the microseconds and the nanoseconds and ultimately the present is part of the conceptual realm. Uh, past, present, and future are all part of the conceptual realm. But you, this is an intellectual pursuit until you're actually resting in the natural state. When you're looking at your own, uh, the nature of your own mind, and you're just observing it, and you even consider this idea of time, you recognize that the present doesn't exist either. That is just, it's a timeless space. Just as in, if you were to look up the stars in the universe, but, but look beyond the stars and look only at the space, you'll recognize in all that space, there is no time. It's simply space. And things exist within it. And would you call that presence? Yes. Which is non-conceptual mind, right? Yes. Presence, you know, you could be present, yes. But the this idea of presence in the fourth time is yeah. is being in the natural state. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. That's clear. I love that. So, how is wind a natural aid in our quest to recognize the empty essence of the mind? Well, wind like anything else. I mean, when I was growing up here in, or work, uh, practicing in LA, there was always helicopters involved. You know, every time I'm sitting in meditation, there's a helicopter hovering above for hours, you know, either pursuing somebody or observing some car accident or whatever. So, you know, this could be very frustrating if you let it bother you, or you can use it to help you. And so while you're, while you're trying to observe your own natural state, you're trying to kind of use things, use all of your senses to help gauge kind of the walls of that state. And this is exactly what the mantra does in transcendental meditation. You're kind of using the mantra to kind of bounce off the walls of your own natural state. And this ultimately kind of begins to highlight the natural state. And wind does this as well. So if you're in a place where there's always winds blowing and that's pretty much the only sound, wind is great because it kind of moves at all these different levels and, 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 you know, speeds. And so you get all kinds of activity. And as you're practicing more and more, you're using the sound. Like, so you're trying to, you're trying to say, okay, how exactly am I hearing that sound? You know, it's out, it's out there. So you're not feeling the bluster of the wind on your body. You're allowed to just use your ears. And, you know, how are you hearing it? Is the, are the ears hearing it or is the mind hearing it? Or is the mind, are the ears ears in the mind going out and grabbing the sound out there and bringing it back to you in this body. Ultimately you come to see that it's all happening with your, within your awareness. And this little tweaking that you're doing as you're observing is getting you closer and closer to um, your own innate essence, this awareness being. And so it's just helping you condition your awareness towards recognizing itself in recognizing the wind. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Got that. That's very conceptual, but I understand. Very conceptual. Yes. Yeah. 
it's, I, hard, it's actually harder to talk about it than it is to do it in practice. Right. I hear that. We can talk about a technique all day long. It's very conceptual. Yes. And then when you do it, it's a whole different thing because you're having a direct experience. Yes. Well, from your direct experience, see, how do you perceive mind from your direct experience, not a conceptualization, but a direct experience put into words? Yeah. So again, all, really only metaphors can really kind of uh, give you a sense. And right. uh, one of the chapters in the book, I speak to the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. um, as being a pretty good metaphor for what you might experience when you get into that non-conceptual state. And it's truly just wondrous. You know, if you're, if you drive up to the Grand Canyon, you sit out and you just put, you know, hang your legs over the edge. It's, um, it's mind blowing in many ways and it's humbling. And this is almost the exact feeling you get when you're just resting in your own natural state. There's all that space, the, the things, you know, so instead of seeing trees and, and, and rock and, you know, uh, paths and all that what you're seeing is your body you're seeing your house you're seeing your meditation space but you're also what gives that stark contrast is the awareness being that you're resting in in the same way that you're looking over the grand canyon all that space all that sky and all that floor way down there uh, gives a certain sanctity to all of the the matter that you're seeing and and this is very similar to what you're experiencing in mind Hmm. Beautiful. What would you say has been in your adult life, the greatest stumbling block or just in general block that has separated you or blocked you from experiencing the divine consciousness? Well, you know, I, you know, I think alcohol is, is huge. You know, if you're drinking every day, then this is going to create, um, some filters on there. So even if you're meditating while, you know, say you meditate in the morning and at night, and yet you still also are having a few drinks. Um, I I've recognized in the last, uh, a couple of years ago that this was definitely a hindrance to my practice. I thought I can to- totally do, do it all. You know, I could do mushrooms. Mushrooms are great for looking at, um, mind in its natural state. That's not a hindrance, but you know, you, you can't be doing them all the time. Uh, whereas, you know, most drugs and alcohol will, if you're doing it enough, it's going to really uh, create a hindrance to your practice. So I would suggest getting rid of um, the drink. And I did. And as soon as I did, I mean, my practice like took off to another level, right? A couple of days. Um, diet also is critical, you know, to get all the pesticides out of your food, um, so there's a couple of things you could do on a practical level with your body, but really, uh, another critical thing is to look at the, your own stories, the stories that you're telling about yourself all the time, or if you recognize that you're continually in need of being flattered or praised or affirmations or all this, this is, this also is going to get, a, get in the way of your practice. So you have to kind of let go of your stories. You have to see them, observe them recognize them and then begin to, you know, with strong intention to let them go. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that honesty and that, um, that, that sharing there. Yeah. Because I think like with alcohol, alcohol can be, and I'm not condoning alcohol usage. I Mm. mean, enjoy your life, have a drink here and there, everything in balance, of course, but alcohol pulls the energy down yeah muddies it up yes uh drugs or psychoactives pull the energy sideways Mm. right (laughs) and i always say we're going or at least i'll speak for myself i'm going for a straight shot yes so do what you do but just know where that thing is pulling you towards it's probably not pulling you in that direction that's straight up, mm. which is the clearest shot or directive or, or road. Yes. I mean, really, if, you're, if your heart is really pulling you toward realizing your higher self, 
then you have to be start becoming very cognizant of what you're putting in your body. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's drugs or alcohol, if you're enjoying them, this is not. I don't have a problem with this either. I mean, I think, like you said, do whatever you want. I don't care. I mean, I I've always enjoyed drugs and alcohol, but I came to recognize that it was more important for me to, uh, that I excelled in my practice. And really, I want I want to fully understand who I am before I leave this planet. Because once we leave this body, we don't have the opportunities that we have now. Sometimes we have a better opportunity in that the body isn't dragging us down. So we have an opportunity to get some really clear understandings. But the body gives us grounding. The body allows us to ground for a long period of time, the entire lifetime that we're in it and receive teachings and excel at those teachings to practice those teachings. And this is a great opportunity and a great gift. And so if we're, if we're kind of like mudding up the body on a daily basis, we're kind of like um, taking away some of our best, op- best time and opportunity to excel in, our, in the teachings that we're trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand as a meditator that, again, some of this might be a little too conceptual and you can't kind of narrow it down to just one thing because Mm -hmm. ultimately it's really about sitting your butt down and getting into the practice. And it's like any great teacher, I think of just BKS Iyengar and, you know, the world of yoga, do your practice and all is coming. That's right. Normally, usually the, the one thing he would say, if anything to his students, just do your practice. You know, I agree with that totally. And, and it will take care of itself. Yes. Um, but that being said, from your experience, what teaching or is there a teaching from this path that you have kind of grabbed a hold of that has anchored you in service to you, say, not going off-roading, not drinking more, not delving into more drug usage, not, you know, cheating on your girlfriend. I don't know, not robbing a bank, not, you know, tapping out. What, if any, is there a teaching that just goes, you know what, this one saved me when I needed it most. Is there one? It has to be Zogchen. It has to be. That is the one. That That's the one that is... <clears throat> If it wasn't for that teaching, I would still be kind of like looking around and trying to find on this on this planet something that fully made sense. And the, I have a very critical mind, you know, like I, I, I'm continually analyzing things down to its essence. And if I find any kind of false flags within it, then I get a little dubious. I, I can appreciate those small little gems that it has. And then I kind of move on. And then so I would I would probably find myself just. Um, frustrated in this lifetime but this zogchen is like it is the ultimate in terms of if you if you're seeking to awaken in this lifetime if you're seeking to enlighten these teachings will point you right in that direction would you consider yourself awake no i i i know how to get there now but you know i have a long ways to go i i've i've recognized i've spent some time in a realized place. Um, I've spent, since writing the book, I've spent less time there because I'm, you know, been having to write it, having to try to publish it. Uh, Now I'm speaking about it all the time. I find that I'm not practicing as much. And when I am, I'm getting distracted by my own inner thought process. Like I could have spoken to that idea a little bit better, you know? So like I knew as I was going to write this book that this is going to kind of like compromise my practice a little bit. But I'm confident enough in my practice to know that I'm going to, you know, as soon as I, I get past this, this little period here, I'm going to get right back in and I'm going to find myself more and more in a realized place. But I'm not, I'm not a realized individual by any means. I'm still very much a practitioner. Mm, I love that. Thank you. I always think of the teacher who said, or the guru said, those that know will never say that they know. Right. <laughs> I know it's great. You see, like uh, Urjan Rinpoche. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, f- obviously, fully realized, and everybody who's spoken about him has said this. But he would never, ever 
you know, oh, I'm just a humble little practitioner. <laughs> you know, he, he would just complete, he was so beautiful in that way. And I've, I've always loved that about teachers when they don't speak to, you know, you would never hear them say anything about their practice other than they're sitting down every single day. Their butt is just all calluses. And uh, that's it. I remember when I was in India with a teacher of mine and um, many would consider a guru or a siddha. And uh, I was, we were at the top of the Himalayas and I'm there with, oh, I don't know, maybe 30 other people. And it was a pretty grueling trek. Uh, and we're, we're there one, one evening looking out at the just vast landscape of these beautiful mountains. And I'm looking at this, this mountain range and I'm seeing his profile clear as day in the mountain range, oh, wow. like Mount Rushmore. It's wow. just him. And I said to him, is that you? And everybody else is seeing it too. And he just sort of dismissed and he goes, yeah, yeah, but I don't like to pay attention to those things because <laughs> it distracts me from my path. Yes. <laughs> so That's let's funny. go. Let's go dinner time, you know. Yeah, turn the other way, everyone. <laughs> you never saw that. You saw that. Now let's let now unsee it. Unsee it. Yes. Well, I think of a quote from, I'm not sure. I think it's just Guru Rinpoche who said true spirituality doesn't take us away from the world. Rather, it connects us even more deeply. Totally. I'm more connected to this world now than I ever had. I, I mean, I was definitely afraid of this world for, for decades, shy, fearful, you know, protective, you know, like um, just tattooing myself all the way as, as forms of protection. And then um, as I began to realize the teachings, my heart began to open and I I'm just in love with this world. Now this, this planet is amazing and everybody on it is amazing. I mean, I do get frustrated with people, all the bad behaviors. This does trouble me, but I love the planet. I love our potential. I love who we can be. And all we have to do is just get ourselves out of this moment, you know, cross over from the warring tribe that we've been for so many centuries and move into the more loving, higher level beings that we all have potential to be. And wow, it's going to be something else. It's going to be amazing. Right. Well, now's the time. And why wait? Right now. Yes. Because the energy as esoteric and woo as it sounds. And I know people listening to this podcast will get it, but they can also feel it in their sensitivity mm. that this energy is kicking your ass out of submission and mm. into action. Yes. Because you wouldn't want it any other way. So let's get to it and not wait till your next incarnation. In fact, maybe you don't need to have a next incarnation. You can just get to your completions right now. You can. You can. Dedicate yourself and you certainly can. What would you say to anyone listening who just goes, okay, I hear you. I want to get to that place. Give me one thing as a takeaway that I can do to just get into that space of nothingness. That is the isness of everything. Well, the, perhaps a takeaway is if you're, if you're looking to awaken in this lifetime, there's a lot of beautiful things that can happen pre awakening. And those beautiful things would be releasing your own anxieties, depressions, fear, anger, troubled relationships, um, these things kind of disappear along the path. You don't actively, you know, get rid of them. They actually just kind of vanish. And what, what refills that space is a, a more loving heart, much more compassion, joy, playfulness. And these are the natural qualities of the natural state. So this even happens like within, within a sh very short time after, after learning the practice and stabilizing, recognizing your own inner world and stabilizing it, it happens within a few months. So this is a, this is, I think one great incentive for a lot of people. If, if you're troubled by your own lifestyle and own life, 
and your own inner world, then you can move through it. And, mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't take very long. Yeah, I'm thinking of the three vital points as the essence in the Zogen practice, which are recognizing the view, mm -hmm. stabilizing awareness, and applying it through action. Yes. So first, we need to be aware of our awarenesses, which you talk about, and I should just quote your book before we go here, where you say quite simply in your book, the key to Zogen practice being aware of your own awareness, being aware or awareness seeing itself. Mm -hmm. If we don't have awareness, then we don't even have a clue on how to shift and do differently. That's right. And if we don't have awareness, then we don't even know what to stabilize ourselves in, thus stabilizing a new awareness that is an uplifting awareness, thus bringing in the potential or the fueling of a new action. So yeah. I just love those three vital points because you can apply it to anything in life. Totally. It's, it's about committing to something, you know, commit yourself to something and why not commit ourselves to seeking out our highest selves, our most beautiful selves. That, that to me would be, should be all of our purposes. You know, I hear so many people say, you know, I don't understand. I don't know what my purpose is on this planet. I don't know what to do. Well, I think you could just like spend some time just trying to recognize your highest self. And that alone is going to align you with your higher purpose. Yeah. Um, I think they're just living in their own pattern or habit of illusion mm. because I don't buy that ultimately we all know ultimately we're already here on purpose yes. just by existing. Yeah. And then the question is how do we use our purposefulness of being in this body so that we can create a shift, dissolve karma, grow in our spiritual progression, spend our time here in this school we call earth Mm. In service to our spiritual growth and upliftment. Yeah. It, it all, it all circles back to the spirit. It all circles back to that unified field. It all circles back to the unseen. So if we're here and we have a body, then it's like, well, let's, let's utilize it. Yeah. So that we can get back to that, which you experience in Zoshan. Yes. You know, and, and sometimes that takes, you know, shutting off the television. And, you know, right. so this is why you get you, you understand why people are sometimes confused on their purpose. And, you know, they're born into this world with the television on 24-7. You know, some people have to go to sleep with the television on. This just totally disallows for you to hear your own inner world. And then if you have people around you who are yelling at each other all the time and the tension's high, you know, it's, it's very clear why so many of us in the Western world are struggling to find their, their, their higher purpose when they, they can barely even find, you know, their own voice. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, you know, you can, you know, th there is that call that takes place within. And if you're quiet enough, you can hear that call and that call begins to lead you towards those little small actions like shutting off the TV or eventually getting rid of it or creating a little space in your house where you could sit and isolate yourself from whoever else is in that house and take a little walks or whatever, whatever it is. So you can step-by-step step develop a pattern and then a practice that will allow you to recognize that inner world of yours. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, see, thank you for your time. Thank you for writing this book. I know this was no small feat, it's jam-packed with really deep teachings, both conceptual and non-conceptual. <laughs> and uh, check it out, guys, Entering the Mind. And uh, see, thank you so much for just sharing mm -hmm. your insight, your path, your wisdom, and your beautiful perceptual lens. Thank you so much. And what a great conversation this was. Thank you. It was fantastic. Anytime. Wonderful. Not the normal boilerplate podcast. No, you're this is this is quite enjoyable. So whenever you want to have me back on, please let me know. Part two to come. That's right. 
Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.